When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to The Great Indoors. The podcast which reveals everything you ever needed to know about interiors and explains how to make it all really work for you in your home. I'm Kate Watson-Smythe. And I'm Sophie Robinson. Now, spring is well and truly in full swing and I'm loving all the decorating that's going on right now. Kate's had the builders in and has a shiny new shower room to reveal. And I've been busy decorating our master bedroom. Pom-poms at the ready. And one of the things that's got me through this past year has been enjoying my home and seeing it with fresh eyes. So yes, there have been a few rooms that have had a reinvention and a refresh lately and my house feels all the better for it. But as seasoned interior design addicts, even we can get stuck on whether to go for a print or a plain fabric to wallpaper the whole room or just the ceiling. The options and possibilities can sometimes feel endless. Now, our sponsors Harlequin have launched an online styling consultancy offering both inspiration and guidance, all tailored to your personalised interior style preferences. Apparently, they had lots of customer feedback that people wanted more advice and guidance on putting colour schemes and patterns together. So they listened and they came up with this really useful service. So if you're looking for interior design inspiration to kickstart your own redecoration, you can book an online appointment with one of their dedicated team of showroom experts who will take you through both the new and the best-selling ranges, as well as guiding you towards developing your own scheme. They will even arrange for the fabric and wallpaper swatches to be sent out to you. How great is that? And you don't even have to put your shoes on or leave the house. And I've got quite used to that. You can book either 30 or 60 minute slots via, now get a pen, sandersondesigngroupshowroom.setmore.com. And we've put that link in the show notes as well. Right then, Sophie, tell the lovely listeners what we've got coming up in the show. Well, today we'll be revisiting the issue of diversity in design with a full-length interview with the brilliant designer, Simon Hamilton, who has plenty of updates on how the industry is tackling this problem. And our star surgery will be to upcycle or not to upcycle an existing kitchen. But first up, let's turn our attention to gold wallpaper and John Lewis nightmares. (laughs) And listener Lisa Reynolds was not the only person who got in touch to say, Kate and Sophie, I'm looking forward to your take on this. So we thought we should oblige. Well, yes, it isn't every day that interior design makes the front pages, but um, certainly been top of the news agenda lately, hasn't it? The this Lisa is talking about is, of course, the story of the Downing Street renovations. Now, We are not going into the political ramifications of this story here. That's a different show. But for the sake of the discussion, the key points are these. Boris Johnson and his fiancée, Carrie Simmons, have renovated their private residence, the flat above number 11 Downing Street. Now, the Prime Minister gets £30,000 a year from the public to spend on his home. But seems that this didn't really scratch the surface as there is speculation that he and Carrie spent up to 200 grand on this renovation. 
The designer the couple chose was Lulu Little from Sewn Britain, and her mission is reported to have been to get rid of the Theresa May's John Lewis furniture nightmare. <gasps> Cue sharp intake of breath. Where do we start? Where do we even start? There's so much to unpick, isn't there? And, you know, we're not going to get into where the money came from. That's a whole other podcast, have you said. But I think there's been two things, hasn't there, that the leader of the country can't suffice with £30,000 a year. And we are talking about redecoration. There's no structural costs or builder costs here. This is furnishings. And it's a grade one listed flat. So, I mean, you're just not allowed to move kitchens and bathrooms. This is decoration. Wallpaper. Yeah. Wallpaper and cushions. Yeah. Um, So that's the first thing, isn't there? That the the eye-watering amount of money. And then the second thing is, you know, reportedly a friend of the couple said that they wanted to get rid of Theresa May's John Lewis furniture nightmare, where a lot of us aspire to a bit of John Lewis furniture. So there's this feeling of like, what's good enough for the rest of us isn't good enough for them. That's definitely been the flavour, hasn't it, in the media. But from my point of view, I could spend 200 grand doing up a flat. You could spend that before breakfast. (laughs) So good. Yes. Sophie Antoinette, never mind Carrie Antoinette. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I don't. Let's just be clear. I don't have nearly that kind of budget to do up my own house. But I can see if one is using a high-end interior designer like Sane Britain, then yeah, it can creep into that probably quite merrily. I mean, again, reportedly, reportedly, they're spending £840 a roll on wallpaper, which, I mean, I've got a soft spot for designer wallpaper, but even by my standards, that's pretty eye-watering. That's put you in the shade, hasn't it? (laughs) It's totally put me in the shade. But when, um, oh, there is just this brilliant article by Lawrence Rollin-Bowen in The Times responding to this very topic. And I just want to read out his opinion on the posh wallpaper because it did make me completely guffaw. He says, posh wallpaper is entry level. It's nursery slopes as far as I'm concerned. Rooms hand-painted with murals are the ultimate in luxury and a key part of British decorating history. I would do something elegant and at the same time a bit challenging. Think of Hampton Court or James Thornhill's work at Greenwich. Does it end up getting a bit Rex Whistler or do we want rolling Italianate countryside? Don't give her any ideas. (laughs) So he goes on. And he says, of course, they should have asked me to design it. We all know how much fun it would be. I would swing in there on a rope like Errol Flynn with my leather trousers and probably a damask-covered rapier and banish the John Lewis. He couldn't afford me, of course, but if Boris calls, I'll waiver my usual fee in exchange for an OBE. I would love to see that, I have to say. <laughs> what, him swinging across the hills with his damask sword? Brilliant. Yeah, and, and the makeover. I mean, can you imagine? Obviously, if you're really indulging in beautiful interior design, and just to sort of back up the truck here, It's about things that are beautifully made. They'll be handcrafted, I imagine. Maybe they're block printed. I'm assuming that there's a lot of bespoke artistic action happening with this redesign, which I'm all for. But is it really necessary and is it really appropriate to spend that much on your home? I mean, that's the other thing that people have been asking. Well, you've got to also ask the question, most people don't have that much money to spend on their forever homes. You know, this is potentially only their home until the next election, uh, which is another (laughs) whole different podcast. Um, But there there is that. Um, I think the thing, I've had quite a few messages about this because there've been a couple of pictures released, which I should be clear on, are not of the flat. We have not seen the decoration, but there've been pictures floating around in the press of 
that sort of look, which is, you know, a patterned sofa matching the patterned wallpaper. You know, it's quite full on. It's actually very much what we talked about in the last show. I mean, that's how ahead of the curve we are. You know, we talked about this trend for lady of the manor, country house style, that all the millennials and, you know, and Carrie is a millennial. She's 32. Yeah. They're all really going for this grand grandma look, which you said is very maximalist, very pattern on pattern, lots and lots of um, vintage embellishments, frills. So it costs, I mean, arguably costs a lot of money to get all of that going on. Well, it does. But equally, we made the point before that you don't have to do this in a really expensive way because it doesn't all have to match, you know, and it's allowed to be a bit shabby and everything. I think the thing that struck me more was, you know, in defence of John Lewis. Oh, really? That really got that really hit a nerve, did it? Well, I feel that you know, they always used to talk about Great Britain as a nation of shopkeepers, didn't they? And if Britain is a nation of shopkeepers, then John Lewis is our shop. You know, it's it's where you go. It's that reliable... I mean, yes, it's quite safe. They're not necessarily pushing the envelope, but they have a huge range of all sorts of designers. And that's why I felt it was unfair. When I used to do interior consulting a few years ago, and people wouldn't necessarily know what they were looking for, I used to, one example I used to give was, if you don't know what chairs you want for your table, go and have a look at John Lewis because they've got their own range, which is quite classic or quite safe. But also they stock all the designer names. So there will be Eames, you know, with its classic mid-century modern. There will be Cartel, a bit more funky plastic, sort of Italian look. They have a huge amount of choice and I think it's unfair and a little bit unkind and snobby to dismiss it as the home of bland taste because I don't think it is. Yeah, no, and they do lots of designer collaborations too, don't they? They've done stuff with all the Kylie. I know Matthew Williamson's got something in the pipeline with them. So for sure, it is not a bland, boring nightmare. They clearly have not been... <laughs> have not been into John Lewis, probably not about to go into John Lewis either anytime soon. But it's the snobbery, isn't it, I think, that's really hit a nerve that somehow a furniture store, like you say, which is a brilliant British brand as well, let's be honest, that champions British design as well, and isn't the most affordable. Like I said, you know, it's not your IKEA flat pack. Lots of people aspire to have pieces from John Lewis and see them as investment purchases. So I think that's really rubbed people up the wrong way. However, I do know that within high-end interior design circles that it represents everything that's bland and ordinary about interior design. The department store look, if you like, is what's been pricked at here. There's also something else that I've seen coming out in quite a few media reports that this is all very degrading for Carrie and Boris because one shouldn't be bothering oneself with the silly business of interior design and it should all be a bit below them and it's not very professional to consume oneself with trying to have a nice home. And obviously, I mean, that hasn't sat well with me either because I think, why shouldn't the Prime Minister of our country have a home that he and his partner indeed love and they want to get it right. I mean, you know, take out the budget for a second and just the fact that they're committed, clearly committed to having a look that they want in their home that's going to make them feel their best. And they don't just want to live with Theresa May's look, which it clearly isn't their taste, wherever she got it from. The first point, I think, is we don't think it was Theresa May's taste, was it? Because I don't think she spent any money decorating. I think that was the Camerons who spent money decorating. But the point I felt very strongly about was if we've learned nothing from this last year, it is the absolute 
importance of the link between our mental health and well-being and our surroundings. And I think there's absolutely crucial to spend the money you have within your budget, whatever that budget is, making sure that you are creating a space that works for you and gives you what you need, leaving aside whether you need gold wallpaper to be able to sit down and, you know, compose an Instagram caption or or whether you simply can't relax unless your sofa matches your wallpaper, you know, each to their own. But the point is, I think spending money on your interior design is important to your well-being. And also, you know, never mind good taste, bad taste. Diana Vreeland, who used to edit Vogue, who is well known for some of the pithiest quotes around, she says, a little bad taste is like a splash of paprika. We all need some little splash of bad taste. It's hearty, healthy, physical, and we could use more of it. No taste is what I'm against. And I think that is a key point. It doesn't matter what it looks like as long as it's right for you. Maybe that's where Theresa May was going wrong. Wonder if she had matching cushions. I bet she had matching cushions. Well, maybe if she hadn't just accepted Samantha Cameron's cushions, she might have been a lot happier. Yes. Splashed out and bought her own cushions. Yes. Oh, well, apparently the kitchen was grige. Now, that is a design crime. I'm sorry. A grige kitchen. I would have to see the back of that too. Well, the joy of all this, of course, is this has led to endless discussions. And there was an enormous thread which just went on for hours, pages of phone on Twitter about various people's design crimes, some of which were absolutely fabulous. It was started by Rhiannon L. Coslett, and she says, seeing as interiors are in the news, what's the one interior thing you can't stand or that just baffles you? She says, I'm not interested in class snobbery, by the way, more extreme irrational opinions on all aspects of aesthetics. This is such a great thread to start. But it is kind of the point, isn't it, that a lot of them are irrational. Colour-coordinated books for me. Are we going to read some out? Yes. Oh, I like this one from uh, Charlotte. She says, mirrored furniture, and she even uses capital letters. <laughs> I like this one from Sharon O'Dea. Home spelled out in letters on the wall or mantelpiece. Baffling. Do you need help remembering where you are? <laughs> <laughs> uh, Miranda Sawyer, she chips in. She goes, rugs that go around the bottom of the toilet. To be honest, these are not around as much as they were in the 70s and 80s. And they often came with a matching toilet lid, like it needed a hat. <laughs> oh, sort of furries, like a shagpile lulid. Yes. yes. In a yes, kind of yes, slightly yes. bilious pink. Um, I like this one from Dr. Joe Grady. Ensuite bathrooms. Nothing says romance slash misery more than hearing your significant other on the loo as you lay in bed several feet away. <laughs> I never really thought of that. Nor did I. And then I saw one that I thought, oh, yes, I put that in my Design Crimes 101. Someone said vases with twigs in. (laughs) Oh, yes, stick twigs. Here's a lovely one from Oliver Bennett. TV above the fireplace, plantation blinds, dentist bright LEDs, wire bowls with nuclear green Granny Smith apples and photography books by Herb Ritz on glass coffee tables. Oh, quite specific. Yes. Oh, well, that's that's what I mean. It's lovely, isn't it? Some of these design crimes are so specific and indeed possibly random, but I kind of know what he means. Yeah, and irrational, which is the joy of a design crime. It has to be sort of irrational. I'm absolutely sure you have views on all of this. So do come and share them. Do join the chat on our joyous Facebook group, The Great Indoors Podcast, which is a wonderfully supportive and celebratory space and the perfect antidote to this story.
Now, it was nearly a year ago that the murder of George Floyd sparked a wave of horror, outrage and protest across the globe. It was a moment that shook us all, even here on our podcast about cushions. Because the truth is that the interior design industry, along with so many others, does have a problem with diversity. And interiors has traditionally been a very white, very middle-class realm. So we did a special showcasing some of the experiences of those in the industry, from journalists to TV producers to designers, and from old hands to those just starting out. If you missed it and would like to listen, it was episode five of series seven. And that show painted a pretty depressing picture of lack of representation, discrimination, and out-and-out racism in the industry. But it also made clear that this was a real moment of opportunity. For example, blogger Poonam Sharma said it was a chance for brands to listen and respond and to make sure the people they work with represent our mixed nation. Designer Terry-Ann Tilston called on events organisers and PRs to work to actively include a diverse range of designers. Roby Dutter, who was executive producer of the BBC's DIY SOS for six years, talked about how shows like his have a duty, which he took very seriously, to find and nurture diverse talent both in front of and behind the camera. It might not always be easy to find or fully formed, he said, but it is there. And designer Eva Sanaika talked of the responsibility of designers like herself to be role models and to open doors and provide opportunities for those coming after them. So, a year on, what progress has been made? In a minute, we'll hear from Simon Hamilton on the work he's done for the British Institute of Interior Design on exactly this issue. But first, there are some other concrete developments we wanted to share. First up, Kate, it was you and Rukmini Patel who set up that initiative, Design for Diversity Pledge, that you shared with lots of businesses to try and get, you know, brands and retailers and designers and anybody really, I suppose, working under the interior design umbrella to get on the table with this, to acknowledge the situation and start making actions to improve diversity within their own businesses. Yes, so we set up a three-point pledge basically to try and get companies to think about being more inclusive when it came to hiring or more representative when they're holding events or even on their digital and home channels to have more diversity and more representation. And the idea was that you you took the pledge and it would start a conversation, continue a conversation or make people feel either more confident about approaching a brand to ask for work experience or jobs or to offer their design services, but just to show people that brands were aware and willing to have this conversation. And we had, I mean, it's been been great. We've had about 150 brands have signed up at the last count. And we've had some really big names. So the Sanders and Design Group have signed up. We've had Magnet Kitchens have just taken the pledge. Farrow and Ball. One of the first sign-ups was Heels, the um, furniture store on Tottenham Court Road. And they've taken the pledge, one of the first to take the pledge, and they've really started to make significant changes. And that's involved engaging with every member of staff to hear their feedback to start with and also, you know, make sure they're involved. So they've put out a company statement acknowledging that more needs to be done. And we're very aware of this all the way along. All these are just starting points. But they've spoken with every single colleague 
about the pledge and what every single person can individually do on a practical level. They've engaged workshops, they've had departmental sessions with teams to start conversations on equality, diversity and inclusion. They've done what they called a privilege walk, which I think must be a sort of virtual walk where everybody talks to everybody else about their experiences and it's a safe place to listen. So they've really taken it on board and and done other things. And I mean, one of the things, I guess, is that the bigger companies have been slightly slower to get their strategies in place. And that's perhaps because they're working on a global level or they need more layers of approval. So they're slower to jump. But a couple of the smaller businesses, um, I was just going to highlight what they've done. And one of those is the Monkey Puzzle Tree. And she uh, runs a design textile company in Leeds and said at the time we set the pledge up that she'd really struggled to find designers from ethnically diverse backgrounds and that taking the pledge had helped her kind of open the door and say, look, here we are, we want some people. So she took on a designer called Josephine Makyebua and she lives in Leeds. She's black, she's from Ghana, and she's working with them on a new wallpaper, which they're going to release this year, inspired by the animals of Africa. And Charlotte Raffo, who runs Monkey Puzzle Tree, says it has been slow. They've not been able to meet in person because of COVID, but they're talking on Zoom, and they're going to be releasing that design. She's also working with a designer called Saima Kaur, who's from India, who lives in Hebden Bridge. She's an embroiderer, so they're working together. So that's just sort of one example. And then another company based in Derbyshire called Black Pop Design. They, again, were very early sign-ups, came to us and said they were going to operate a bursary for a local student. And that was the plan before COVID hit. And then, of course, they've taken a slightly different route because, you know, lockdown went on for longer than anyone thought. But they've been working with a designer called Jess Boteng, who had been to their showroom with one of her designs. And they're working together to mentor her, do workshops via Zoom, again, to put one of her designs into production. So, you know, it's a start and it was a conversation opener, but that's what we've been doing with that. So it sort of feels like some of the smaller brands have been able to, for want of a better word, pivot and implement changes within their businesses quite quickly to be more open to diversity. Whereas some of the larger brands, and you touched on the fact if they're global, they've got more hurdles ahead of them. So, you know, this is slow change, isn't it, from some of the bigger companies, but the intention is there. It didn't just go away with a an Instagram square last year. Even if we're not seeing the benefits front on, you're saying the conversations are happening in the background. I think there's a lot going on behind the scenes. I think, of course, it's frustrating. You know, it does appear to be slow. And, you know, sometimes you can sort of think, why is it taking you so long? It shouldn't be that difficult. But I think it's worth appreciating that the the bigger brands, the more staff, the more voices, the more layers of bureaucracy to go through, whether you regard that as an excuse or a reason. I think it's fair to say that conversations are happening and it's not gone away. And that's all to the good. And another thing, Rukmini and I were involved with the Mayor's Fund for London, which runs educational programmes. And we hosted a webinar where we talked to designers from diverse backgrounds who gave a live webinar to students who are thinking, career students at the age of 16, who are thinking what jobs they might want to go into. So Gemma Samuels from Happy Habitat, who took part in last year's podcast 
and Eva Sonaika and Rukmini all shared their experiences about how they got into interior design, product design, the world of interiors and gave that as a live webinar to some students who might be thinking of working in that direction. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And I'm hopeful that when we can report back in a year again, that there will be more sort of concrete stuff, but it hasn't gone away. It's all still working there. Conversations are still happening and steps are being taken. Another one of the initiatives to come out of everything that was talked about this time last year was United in Design, set up by the interior designers Alexandria Dawley and Sophie Ashby. And very much their sort of mission was to try and nurture and encourage people into the profession of interior design. And they have been working really hard, actually, not just behind the scenes. They've now got five apprentices placed on 12-month placements across four design studios. And they're all being paid a salary of £22,000 a year. So the point of splitting them across four studios is that they get a range of experience, but also it means that some of the smaller studios can afford to pay because they're all paying part of the salary each. So that's come and they've taken graduates. They're graduates from 2020, so either graduates in interior design or interior architecture. So they've got that going on. They've got 47 mentee-mentor relationships, which can go on for as long as you want, whether it's, you know, a weekly Zoom meeting or a relationship that goes on for years and years that just creates partnerships. And they've got an event coming up on the 13th of July in Chelsea Design Harbour, which they've called the Diversity Festival. And this is about bringing in students or just design enthusiasts from all backgrounds to come and show their portfolios or get feedback on their CVs, meet some brands. And they'll also be bringing in brands to talk to them about working with United in Design, but also a key point about encouraging brands to look at a wider pool for recruitment and not just recruiting designers from the same sort of expensive middle-class white schools, but looking further afield for a wider range of students. So I think that's really important as well. So when I was putting together these facts, I asked Alex you know, if she felt there had been any changes over the last year and whether she sort of felt she was pleased with any progress. And she made the point that she feels there has been a real change in the print press. It's much more inclusive than it was. There's been a real shift in the narrative, she said, and much more sort of diverse people being featured. So I thought, you know, that was really interesting. Now, we wanted to talk about this subject in a little more detail, so we invited Simon Hamilton onto the podcast, who's not only an interior designer, he's also the founder of Design Career Consulting, which was established to advise other designers and help develop their careers. Now, Simon has done everything, really, from lecturing at Central St. Martins in London and L Education in Madrid, to judging this year's Design Sustainability Awards. Between 2010 and 2014, he was the International Director of the British Institute of of interior design, the main industry body. And then last year, he joined their newly formed Diversity and Inclusion Committee to address the lack of diversity in the sector. So, Simon, you have been so busy. Thank you so much for uh, joining me today and making the time to talk to us. Thank you so much, Sophie. Yes, I have been very busy. It's very um, good to be here. And thank you for that huge introduction. <laughs> 
So, Simon, a year ago when we first did our diversity special, people like the BIID, which is obviously, you know, our big industry body here in the UK, they didn't really have a policy when we spoke to them a year ago. There wasn't any clear paper on what they thought about it or, or response, but that's changed, hasn't it? I know you've been pivotal around that. Can you can you tell us what they're doing? Yes, they, they've definitely taken action. And what they wanted to achieve, because obviously they represent their members and they want to do things for their members, but they needed to find out what the situation was. So they conducted a survey. And although the actual kind of pool of people wasn't huge, it was a start. And in that survey, what they discovered is that the sort of discrimination and lack of diversity is not quite as one might have expected. Obviously, there isn't representation in design in terms of perhaps panel discussions and magazines and things like that. But in terms of education, there are a lot of uh, interior designers that are from black or ethnic minorities. But the problem that we really discovered through that survey is that there's a gap in between them qualifying or graduating and then actually securing a job. And that is where there's a lot of discrimination. And so the opportunities are not being broadened and uh, given to everybody. I thought that was particularly interesting because there was a, a real concern that young people, if they don't see themselves represented in an industry, perhaps don't go into the education system in order to aspire to that kind of career. But what you've seen is actually, yes, people are entering into higher education, but the link is now breaking down between graduating and getting on the career path. Yes, absolutely. So that's the thing that has to change. It's really the attitude of employers, recruiters and practices. And they may not even be aware that they're discriminating because they're just doing what they've done before. So it's creating that sort of awareness and educating people to say, well, actually, when you are advertising, perhaps you should include a policy that says, yes, this is open to everybody. And they really encourage it, even though people might assume that is what is happening, just to actually make a point of it and have applications that are blind application so you're not even looking at somebody's name because people do get discriminated against because of their surname or their first name or something like that and you know health checking at a senior level so that you can see within their own practice are you diverse are you already representing a kind of broad range of people within your own company and that when you're interviewing people that the panel those people are diverse themselves and that doesn't just mean in terms of their race but also their background and other sort of factors. Yeah, I think this is really interesting when we're talking about diversity. Obviously, interior design has more issues other than just diversity of race and background. Obviously, there's also the socioeconomic question. Uh, interestingly, it's a very female-orientated industry, isn't it? I thought that was... It very... is, and the survey brought that up, yes. yes. <laughs> and there's, there's friends of mine that are male that are designers and they feel discriminated against because they feel outnumbered and they felt sort of not welcome in a company because, oh, they're not female. So there's the discrimination at all sorts of levels. And some of the things that I've been mentioning are, uh, are the sort of policies that United in Design have come up with. You know, that was set up by Sophie Ashby and Alexandria Dawley. And they have been very active in trying to address diversity because they have taken action and they've been very successful in that they've got an apprenticeship scheme. And those apprentices are paid and it lasts a whole year and they get the opportunity to work for four different practices or brands. So it's really about helping the younger generation understand, yes, there are opportunities, as you said, they do go into education, but to bridge the gap between 
graduating and then getting a job in um, why and why shouldn't they aspire to a really big leading company and then they will be represented then they will be role models so it's a slow process but it's definitely changed from last year and it's wonderful to see that two people with a passion with experience and good connections in the industry they're using the power of their network aren't they to make a difference they are. And the other thing that I think is true and also worth noting is that they've come up with lots of um, information because of the companies they've been dealing with. So 43% of companies are more ethically diverse boards are more likely to outperform on profits. So the bottom line can be affected if companies address diversity and inclusion. So companies need to think about that. And companies in the top 25% for ethnic diversity were 33% more likely to achieve a profit above the industry average. So if people have a reluctance about this, it's not a trend or a fad. It's something that is important. We're now in the sort of fourth industrial revolution, if you like. And um, we kind of need to be aware that culture and how people integrate and how they relate to each other is super important. So I think now's the right time really to take this on board and United Design and BIID are doing sterling work and the thing that would really help is if other people join them to do that. Yeah, absolutely, because I think... It can be too comfortable, can't it, to sit back and think it has to be the brands, it has to be the big organisations, it has to be the big charities that do all this. But actually, you know, what we hear again and again is we can all make a real difference. Yeah, and I, I've been lucky, as you said, that I was, you know, International Director of BIID for four years. And I did that as a voluntary thing whilst I was running my own company. And now I'm working as a consultant helping designers. And those designers could be students and they can be people who are trying to change into a different sector. But nearly everybody is in the situation where they need some help, they need some advice, they need guidance. And so by pulling on the experience I've had from the past, and that includes traveling and seeing how other people deal with design, I'm able to kind of help them with that. And it's a confidence thing as much as anything else. But I've also been in recruitment. That's another kind of area that I dealt with. And I think that's an area that could do well to to sort of look at itself in terms of how they recruit for companies and what their policies are and where they advertise vacancies and, you know, showcase diversity on a company website or career pages. So what I'm doing with my designer series at the moment is uh, trying to showcase designers that have a story, but also are quite diverse in their range of skills, but also their background. So that's something I've been running for the last four weeks on my Instagram. So you know, it's really quite exciting, I think, at the moment to be in design. There's a lot going on. There's an awful lot of work around, far more than I imagined, because you think with a pandemic that everything's slowed down. But I think now people want to be extra creative and they want to give some people something extra to or special to look forward to. And that's what design and the creative industry is all about. It's about thriving and, and energy and and expression. And as you would say as well, colour, and I love colour too, so <laughs> I love that. <laughs> well, let's not forget <laughs> yes. the colour. You can't go wrong with colour. <laughs> well, that's it's all about um, happiness and, yeah. and mood boosting and yeah. feeling good and excited in life. And I and I totally concur, and I think it's lovely that in terms of the bigger picture, you know, we're talking a lot about opportunity for people and about design being an exciting career to follow or indeed, you know, whether you're a professional interior designer or we also obviously include an, our umbrella 
journalists and bloggers and Instagrammers and stylists and retailers. They all jostle under this wonderful, colourful umbrella of uh, yes. of interior design. And this has given us a lot to reflect on in many, many different areas. But I agree with you. And I'm seeing it in my industry within media and TV and stuff, lots and lots and lots of opportunities, a celebration of interior mm, design, yes. you know, people really understanding what it means. What you're saying is it's all up for grabs. It is. And I'm looking forward to seeing that again, because I'm going to be coming back to London in June because I'm involved in design events. United in Design have got a festival that they're hosting in on the 13th of July. And that opportunity, that experience is going to build. And it's about building your confidence, about building your network and building your experience and skills. So I would encourage people that if you can get an opportunity with a company to take that opportunity, work with them. That's how I did it. When I was working as a freelance designer, I worked in lots of different practices. And it was great because you didn't get involved in the politics, but you still did the work and you could turn up and move around. And it was fantastic. And that's how I learned a lot of the skills before I set up on my own. And you can see how to do things and how not to do things as well. Oh, Simon, this is all so brilliant. I can see why you make such a brilliant mentor and you talk with such passion and you're so clearly generous with all the knowledge and all the experience that you've built over the years and have a real passion for helping people, I suppose, follow a career that you've really enjoyed, ultimately. Yeah, well, thank you very much for that. It's very humbling. But the thing is, I was always worried that I didn't have a straight linear career path. And I was thinking, why am I doing this? And why am I changing to that job? And actually, I think in the last couple of years, and it's taken all this time, because I'm over a certain age, (laughs) that I've now realised all those things were relevant because I worked in different companies. I've worked as an employee of several companies. I've always had the policy leave on good terms. So my network has always grown because I've always, you know, good relationships with people and built those relationships and kept them going. And some of my best friends are people I've worked with 20, 30 years ago, and they're still good friends of mine. That is such a pearl of advice. That is such, I think, you know, that's definitely one that I've used in my career as well. Always leave on good terms. You know, just because that's a lovely thing to do as well, but it does also make brilliant career sense as well. It does, it does. And people have helped me out because of that. And as you say, I've been generous because I felt that I want to be and I enjoy it. And there were times when I thought, oh, I'm going to give up design. You know, I'm, I'm tired of that. I don't want to be putting sample boards together and looking at, you know, building sites. But actually... That's a lie. I know it's in my blood. I've had to come back to it. (laughs) So all this research that the BIID have done is excellent in getting an overall view of where we are now. But how do you see it playing out over the next year? Well, I think they are cautious that they've gathered some information. It's just an early start. But what they want to do is come up with a strategy that they can use on a longer term basis. So they're going to present the information again to the membership and they will be using that to advise companies and practices as to what they can do, what they can actively change about their processes in terms of recruitment or where they look. And also they will be aligning themselves perhaps with organisations that are already taking action. So Reba are 10 years ahead and they're well established and they're extremely respected in a very different professional body. So there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from that. So rather than sort of 
trying to reinvent the wheel. They're bringing on board specialists and trying to kind of collaborate with organisations that have been doing this for some time. And that can be through mentorship and it can be through having more representation from different members within the BIID who will have an interest in this. So when they do have events and other things going on, they can say, look, we're not just talking about it. We are actioning this plan. And so that's what they want to do. And it's going to take a while. But, you know, in tandem with United in Design and other organisations, I think they're going to create quite a wave in the industry. Now, Simon, we have a really wide listenership here at the podcast. We've got people who are studying design, people who are interior designers, people who employ interior designers, as well as obviously brands and PRs. And if anybody's feeling like they'd like to get involved, they'd like to help, they'd like to get part of this network, what should they do? Well, I would say that they could contact me because that's easy, designcareer.co.uk, because I've got a diversity and inclusion section on my website and I'm more than happy to talk to people about it and what they can do. They could also contact United in Design, unitedindesign.com, and they could become partners for United in Design. They could even set up apprenticeships with them or support them by donating money. I also created an event which was with Creative Skills Network and raised some money, which we're donating directly to United in Design. So there's lots of ways you can support them and find out. Also, there's the BIID, which is BIID.org.uk. So they will be more than happy to receive your emails, calls, etc. about this subject because it does cross all sectors of design. That is amazing. And of course, we will put all those links on both mine and Kate's blogs and on the show notes below. so encouraging to hear Simon's optimism around this and we'd really like to hear your thoughts as well. You can find us as ever on Instagram where I'm mad about the house and she's Sophie Robinson Interiors. Now for our star surgery which this week's comes from Chloe in Greenwich. In London she says, not Connecticut, though I'm sure we do have some listeners in Connecticut. So hello to both Greenwiches. When you're ready, Sophie, greetings around the world. <laughs> Hi Sophie and Kate, loving the podcast. I have a question on whether or not to upcycle my current kitchen. So I'm thinking about sanding down the units, replacing the worktop and changing the handles, or just cut my losses, save myself a lot of time and energy and just get a new kitchen. What would you do? Do you think it's worth using what you've got or just to call it a day and get something brand spanking new? I think this is a really interesting dilemma, actually, because there is that question, isn't it, of how far do you go with what we in newspapers would call polishing a turd? And at what point do you rip it out and start again? And I can quite see here that Chloe, by the time she's sanded the doors, replaced the doors, changed the worktop, done the handles, you know, there's a point of how much is still the original kitchen, how much is upcycling and how much is a new kitchen anyway. So... It's a difficult one. I mean, I think the the first thing to look at would be, does the layout work? Because if the layout of what you've got doesn't work and it's difficult to move it around without ripping it out, then you're into new kitchen territory, aren't you? Well, just first up, I think on, on that note, is it is so much cheaper to replace your handles, your worktops and paint your doors than ripping out and building again. I mean, the budgets are 
massively different. You know, you're talking about thousands of pounds for a new kitchen, whereas you're you're arguably talking about hundreds of pounds for the type of refresh Chloe's talking about. I think with an existing kitchen, just the quality of the kitchen from the get-go, like, is it slightly falling apart? Is it made of chipboard? Has it got, you know, soggy, crumbly corners? Is the wear and tear up to scratch would be my first thing. I mean, it's that. It's interesting, isn't it? Because you could easily spend, I mean, whether you have the equivalent of your £840 a roll handles, uh, <laughs> you know, because you can, you know, how long is a piece of string? You can upcycle those handles to everything from a cheap hardware store to buster and punch very fancy handles. £100 so, a handle, yeah. £100 a handle. And I think if you just take a minute to count how many handles you've got in your kitchen, I think you'd be surprised quite quickly how many that's going to mount up to. So, you know, you could, as you say, you could quite easily spend several hundred pounds. If you're doing the worktop as well, you could tip that over into thousands on something which may not last that much longer. Or there's also your kind of attitude to it. You know, you could do all that and you think it's great for a year, two years, and then you're going, oh, but I want, you know, it's no good. And you're ripping it out anyway. So it's, I think to answer that question, you've got to, or Chloe, or anyone in a similar position, you've got to look quite hard and ask yourself some quite tough questions. You know, I'm more sustainable by upcycling this and giving it a new lease of life. But am I going to love it for the next 10 years or am I going to rip it out anyway? And as long as the kitchen has got the life left in it, because I think arguably, you know, some kitchens are beautifully made. You know, say it was an investment kitchen. It's got beautiful drawers and doors, but it's dated. The look of it is dated. And that's when I would really urge people to, yeah, think sustainably and think about even replacing the doors and the worktops. And yes, arguably that would get more expensive, but not nearly as expensive as a high quality kitchen. However, if you've got a bit of a shonky flat pack kitchen, which is all a bit winky wonky, <laughs> then, oh God, at best a lick of paint, do you know what I mean? To give it a, a bit of love. I mean, I saw an absolutely fantastic kitchen transformation the other week. I went to go and see um, Anna Jacobs, who is a artist and a homewares designer, also on Instagram. And she's in a rental And it was beige, beige and more beige. And she found herself slipping into pools of depression around all the brown (laughs) in her house because she's a colour lover like me. And she's painted her units and replaced the handles. But this was the game changer. She's had her worktop wrapped. (laughs) It's wrapped in plastic vinyl by a professional company, not by your sort of Blue Peter sticky black plastic. It's like quite a serious wrap. I think they're car wrappers, aren't they? So they know how to do curves and and you know bits with hair dryers and stretching I mean it all looked quite technical because I have to say she's inspired me oh you can have your worktop wrapped I can't see getting that past the mad I'm not having my worktop wrapped because I love my worktop I am gonna have what she's also done I'm gonna have my fridge wrapped oh that's so cool well I hmm, let's hope so lime green she's she's had hers done lime she green. has please do it lime green Kate no I'd love to see a lime green fridge in your kitchen no it would look bonkers no I'm going to unplug my earphones if you say it again. (laughs) There will be no lime green. What colour are you going to wrap your fridge in then? Well, you'll just cry. Oh, God, what is it? Going to be like beige? Not beige. Cream. Cream. My kitchen's cream. My yeah, I knew it. <laughs> I knew it would be. Oh, Here's the God thing. Cream. So my kitchen is basically chocolate brown and, you know, cappuccino. 
Cream and bran. Oh, you had to get rid of the pink, didn't you? Yes. Did the pink go? The pink's gone. Oh, the pink went. Pink's gone. But no more talk of the pink in the kitchen. I really hate our fridge. You know, it's a big hulking lump of stainless steel and I just... That grey metallic's not going with your oh, chocolate just, and your cream, I just don't it? like it. I don't like it. And, you know, it works perfectly well. We've had it for 10 years. I've got absolutely no reason or excuse or need to replace it. So there it stays. Also, hard to get colourful fridges, right? I mean, they tend to come in white... Stainless steel, occasionally black, and then you can go a bit off piece with a colourful one, but then that's the price of a small second-hand car. They get really expensive, don't they? Well, this is it. But I'm quite excited. I will, of course, share when it's done. So that's a good upcycle, isn't it? Because you've got a good quality appliance. Like you say, you don't like the look of it, but it works perfectly and you found a really affordable and effective way of changing the look of it. And I suppose this is the same theory that one would apply to your kitchen isn't it and I mean and, and Anna's obviously wrapped her worktop because she rents and she can't replace it so those are her limitations and she's also all stuck vinyl across the tiles as well I mean she's absolutely you've got to check out her Instagram because it's all on there and we'll we'll share and put it on the blog post as well she's even got a vinyl tile print as a splashback but you know with going back to poor Chloe who we've kind of left behind here for a moment while we drool over fridges her issue is whether it is worth the faff but what I'm kind of saying is it doesn't have to be a lot of faff does it I mean you know you can get someone in to change your worktop you could get a decorator in to paint the cupboards Um, you can even take them off and get them spray painted which looks really snazzy if you've got uh, this is if you've got a good quality kitchen you know if you've already got a kitchen that was an investment purchase in the first place like I say not one of the cheaper flat pack ones you can get them sprayed and it can I mean I've known people who've done that who maybe bought the white kitchen as a sensible choice quickly realise that that's a disastrous thing to do and two years down the line they hate their white kitchen and they've literally just taken all the doors off and had them resprayed in a in a lovelier colour. Well, we did that. And when we moved in here, we had an Ikea kitchen and we started off with the original Ikea doors and then we replaced them with MDF doors and new handles, which we painted in one colour. And then we painted them again. So we did sort of carry on with that basic kitchen for quite a long time. So I think, you know, from Chloe's point of view, she's got to sort of do the sums of what she might spend upcycling versus what her budget for a new kitchen might be, because she might be talking about having a very expensive bespoke kitchen. She might be talking about having an Ikea one and upcycling the doors a bit or getting fancier doors. So, you know, look at the budget and then try and get some sort of calculation as to are you going, you know, you can go to this sort of changing this, the handles and the worktop and upcycling it and making it a bit better. But if you're going to want a new kitchen in a year, is it worth it? If you think you can extend the life of your kitchen for five years, then it probably is worth it. Oh, as always, Kate, sage advice. Well, I do try to be practical. One of us has to be when I'm reining you in from your (laughs) £840 a roll wallpaper. One one of us has got to keep our feet on the ground. (laughs) So thanks, Chloe, for that brilliant question. And do send us your star surgery questions. Just record a little voice note on your phone and email it to thegreatindoorspod at gmail.com. Now, we've really covered a lot today, so do head to the blogs for more detail of links and so on. I'm sophierobinson.co.uk and she's madaboutthehouse.com. 
And don't forget to leave us a review on your podcast app if you can. We totally love reading them. In fact, I had a very nice comment on my blog the other day. Thank you, Kate and Sophie. That was a cracker of an episode. Maybe one of the best you have done. Really fab mix of informed discussion and useful ideas mixed with such funny bits. Loved it all. And that was from Catherine Middleton. Now listen... Boris Johnson and Carrie Simmons may not be listening, but Catherine Middleton is. I mean, all right, maybe it's not that Kate Middleton, but you never know. I think the Duchess of Cambridge is very likely to be an avid fan of the show. So forget <laughs> Carrie's gold wallpaper. Perhaps Kate's got a gold ceiling, just like mine. Um, thanks, Catherine Middleton. And thanks also to our sponsor, Harlequin, and to our producer, Kate Taylor of Feast Collective. And the biggest thanks goes to you for listening. And we'll see you in the great indoors. 